Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. China's People's Liberation Army is famously the largest in the world, with more than 2 million soldiers on active duty. Less well-known, perhaps, is the role America played in shaping it. In 1862, in the midst of America's civil war, the Qing dynasty in China was also in turmoil thanks to a huge rebellion led by a man who proclaimed himself to be the brother of Jesus Christ. At its peak, the Taiping rebels ruled over perhaps 30 million Chinese. The answer to this insurrection was a mercenary from Salem, Massachusetts, called Frederick Townsend Ward. After a fighting career that included stints in Mexico and Crimea, Ward took command of the Qing dynasty's ever-victorious army, which played a key role in defeating the Taiping Rebellion. Ward was eventually killed in a battle near Xixi in Ningbo province, shot in the stomach in September 1862, while back home McClellan and Lee were fighting the Battle of Antietam. But the tactics and equipment Ward introduced in China were imitated by subsequent Chinese armies, an early case of technology transfer. America has long since ceased to be a model for China. Meanwhile, America's suspicion of China's Communist Party has grown into full-blown hostility. But despite the mutual antipathy, the countries are bound together by a global supply chain that neither can easily unwind. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideaux, The Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what is Joe Biden's China policy? The Trump administration switched from a foreign policy organized around managing China's rise to something much more confrontational. The Biden administration, despite its difference in tone, has kept key parts of the Trump approach in place. So what is the Biden-China doctrine? And does it all add up? With me to discuss all of this are John Fasman, the US digital editor, and we're delighted to welcome back Zanny Minton Beddoes, our editor in chief. Zanny, last time you came on the podcast, we were both in the US and you were euphoric about being let loose uh, in the land of the free. How's the come down from that been? <laughs> well, I was euphoric, and the come down has been pretty rough, actually, for, for two reasons. I came back to the UK and had to go into self-isolation, as everybody does who's coming back uh, from the United States. And then, unfortunately, my daughter was tested positive for COVID. She's fine. But I went into a further isolation um, from which I am emerging tonight, actually. I think it's midnight tonight. I'm actually allowed out again. So I'm feeling, you know, soon to be euphoric again. But I'm afraid it's been a pretty rough couple of weeks back here. 
Well, I'm sorry to hear that. You have my sympathies. We're also in self-isolation here in the UK because my eldest son was hanging out with somebody who subsequently tested positive for COVID. So we're all fine, but we are isolating for 10 days, which is really tedious. John Fadsman, I hope you're having more fun than Zanya and I are. I'm self-isolating because I am writing this long series of articles on the future of food for our technology quarterly section. It should come out in October. Um, I am two and a half weeks in, so right on schedule, I am thinking about how to run away, change my name, and never have anything to do with writing again. Okay. Well, there's a lot to talk about on this week's pod because we have a China cover on the weekly edition. I've been talking to The Economist's China affairs editor, Gadi Epstein, who's written this week's cover briefing on the likely shape of US-China relations in the Biden era. I started by asking Gadi how Biden's strategy was likely to differ from that of previous administrations. Joe Biden has made clear that he used the the relationship with China in a very different way from his pre-Trump predecessors. For many years, American policy on China was basically just engagement or constructive engagement. And what has surprised people is sort of how ideological Joe Biden sounds. You know, at the G7 in June, he talked about how we are in a contest with autocrats. He has stressed China, the China threat in his meetings with allies uh, from, you know, Japan and South Korea to, to leaders in Europe and NATO. So really what's emerging is is a pretty ideological China doctrine. Before we get to whether Biden's China policy is good or not, what is Biden's China policy? What's the Biden-China doctrine? So there's a new book out by a guy named Rush Doshi, recently a scholar at Brookings. The book's called The Long Game, China's Grand Strategy to Displace American Order. And a lot of it is about China's working for years to uh, undermine American hegemony and shape a more liberal world order. But uh, there's a very interesting chapter in it about what the U.S. should do about that. And what he says is that America should focus on blunting Chinese power and order and building the foundations for U.S. power and order. And what's interesting about this is he's not just a former Brookings scholar, but he's now a China director on the National Security Council, uh, working under Biden, helping craft the China policy for Biden. His mentor is Kurt Campbell, who is really one of the leading architects of Joe Biden's China strategy. And I don't think there's much of a coincidence here that Biden's China doctrine really aligns nicely with many of his prescriptions. And it's about uh, blunting China's rise to sort of borrow Mr. Joshi's words, but it's also to borrow from that from that book about building at home, and that's where it also gets interesting because he's using China to sort of support his domestic industrial policy, kind of buy American, uh, invest in America, his infrastructure plan. What does blunting China look like in practice? I mean, there are several areas that you cover in your briefing. How would you describe the Biden-China policy when it comes to trade? There's a bit of a soft protectionism to it. Um, and uh, you see it in the industrial policy and uh, in the Buy America. You see, you see a little bit of this tilt towards kind of an America-first approach. And they would say it's a middle-class-first approach, an American jobs-first approach. But effectively, what it also means is they're not in a hurry to kind of unwind tariffs, Trump's, Trump's trade one trade deal, 
they're not looking to build a new architecture of uh, kind of freer trade, more unfettered trade with China. So what would you say are the main differences between the two administrations so far, and the Biden-China policy and the Trump-China policy? Granted, the Biden-China policy is still emerging. We're still trying to make sense of what it actually means in practice. Well, there's two, two huge differences. One is that uh, I think Biden sincerely believes that China is an illiberal force to worry about, that authoritarianism being on the march is something to worry about. These are not things that worry Donald Trump. And as we know from John Bolton's book, uh, he even personally, uh, allegedly uh, told Xi Jinping, you know what, your strategy for dealing with Xinjiang is okay, go ahead and build those camps for Uyghurs. We're not going to get any of that from Biden. And Biden's not going to be inclined to accommodate China. So in a way, Biden is actually less flexible than Trump. And that makes his policy tougher. But the other uh, really big difference is Biden cares about alliances, American alliances, and working with partners. And that is a big contrast with Trump, and that will be helpful to him. He's really invested hard in those in those uh, relationships. I do think that there's going to be risks because some of the some of his China strategy won't appeal so much to them. I mean, they're not going to be that keen allies and partners on his talk about a sort of Manichaean black and white China versus America, good versus evil uh, view of the world. A lot of countries are not going to want to have to choose between China and America, or at least are not going to want to confront China too directly. Zani, in the time that the three of us have been covering Washington and American foreign policy, American policy towards China has always had these different interest groups that have sort of been fighting with each other. So American business, particularly big business, has tended to favor more engagement, freer trade with China. Um, Economists advising the White House have been a bit divided on the China effect, but broadly there was at least a consensus that more trade with China was, was more good than bad. And then you had the national security folks you know, within the Pentagon who were much more concerned. And those interest groups sort of balanced out question by question and kind of fought over what the administration's policy would be. It seems now that the power is much more with the national security folks. At least that's what I think you took from your conversations you had last time you were in D.C., That's right. But I think you probably need to step back a little bit. And I think that, you know, four or five years ago, there was a very big shift on both sides of the aisle in the U.S. And frankly, in the kind of foreign policy establishment and indeed much of corporate America, that China under Xi Jinping was not only not playing by the world economy's trading rules, but was becoming more aggressive as it was becoming more authoritarian. And I think there was a kind of big shift in America's view of China away from that sense that engagement might lead China to become a more responsible stakeholder to a much more competitive, rivalrous, sort of fearful uh, relationship. The Trump administration sort of echoed some of that, but did it in a rather arbitrary, unilateral, punitive and kind of unpredictable way. But what's happened now is that the Biden administration has brought, you know, a, a much more sort of coherent focus, but has really stuck with This view that is held very, very strongly, I think, amongst many Americans and and many people in America, that China risks the sort of US-led global order and that the US therefore needs to push back against that. And as Gary said, the way they think about doing that is building back at home, which 
you know, dovetails rather neatly with what the Biden administration wants to do anyway, and blunting China's rise abroad. And I think you're right in that calculus, the economic calculus, the costs of doing this, the costs of disrupting supply chains, the costs of unwinding globalization play much less weight than the national security goal of needing to shore up uh, America's position. I wonder whether framing this as fundamentally a national security matter is the right way to go about this in the long run. If the goal is to safeguard, protect, uphold the rules-based international order that America helped to create after the Second World War, then we need the full buy-in of allies. And I think that what your leader pushes back on really well is the sort of Manichaeanism that Joe Biden presents allies with. As our leader notes, and as I learned from living in Southeast Asia, countries don't like China very much, but they depend on America for security and China for prosperity. And I think if you push them into a corner, it's not at all guaranteed that they will stay with the United States. So I worry that the focus on China's rise, that the, that the very strident rhetoric and the unflexible position that the Biden administration seems to be taking might not be the best strategy to counter or at least contain China in the long run. So I agree with you. I mean, first of all, I, I think you know, I have I have some sympathy with where the Biden administration is coming from. China has been behaving immensely aggressively. And it is, you know, it is a, a an authoritarian regime that is becoming tougher and more aggressive. And we should be kind of clear eyed about that. But you're right, John, that presenting it as a sort of Manichaean struggle, I think is first of all a gift to propagandists in China, because that's precisely what the Chinese government is saying to its citizens. The Americans are trying to keep us down. And so feeding into that isn't terribly helpful. But secondly, I think the it does sort of force a choice or seem to force a choice on emerging economies in Southeast Asia and other fast growing parts of the world that they have to kind of choose one side or the other. And the reality is that many of these countries are, as you say, incredibly entwined with China. China is a huge force in the global economy. It is the biggest trading partner of almost twice as many countries as America is. And so they are faced with a choice they don't want to have to make. And particularly, I think it's a problem. And that's what we were trying to get in, at in our editorial this week. If the, the reason or part of the reason for the Biden administration framing it this way is actually a domestic political agenda, and perhaps this is the cynic in me, but one of the conclusions I take from the way this is framed is that the most important thing for this administration is its domestic agenda. And actually, its China policy is secondary to that. And the most important thing and the way it is judging itself and will be judged is whether, you know, President Biden is a modern day Roosevelt. Because if you, you know, if you stood back and you said, you know, what is the best way to counter China? You would probably put greater weight on bold actions to rebuild the global system, bold vaccine proposals, bold proposals for new trade deals, bold proposals for doing things with allies. That would be front and center. And the building back at home would be sort of part of that. But in fact, they're the other way around. And I think that's because their real focus, and, and understandably for domestic political reasons, but their real focus is the domestic progressive Biden agenda. But I can see the logic for that too, right? If this is a Manichaean struggle between democracy and autocracy, you've got to show that democracy can still deliver for its citizens, right? And so if you're in the Biden administration, that's the argument. You want these big, bold sort of safety net programs to show that we can raise living standards the same way that China has done over the past 20 years, right? Yeah, you do. But but it depends how far you go down that. I mean, is it is and this, this harks back to our conversation last time you were kind enough to invite me on your show about do they want to create, you know, the the union jobs of the mid 20th century. And if you have that vision of what is American middle class greatness, 
then I think that's front and centre for where they are. Okay, thanks both. Zani, um, just as a footnote, you can come on any time. We'll look back 20 years to China's entry to the World Trade Organization and the beginning of an era of US-China engagement in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You can read Gadi's briefing, a superb piece on the US-China space race, as well as a fascinating look at doping in sport ahead of the Olympic Games. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f***? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Two decades ago, China joined the World Trade Organization. Its entry encouraged by America. That era of optimism and cooperation now seems very distant. But I asked David Rennie, our Beijing bureau chief and former Washington bureau chief, to look back at the birth of an age of engagement, which may now be ending. Back in 2000, uh, the American government under Bill Clinton was getting ready to take a gigantic step to start to treat China almost like an equal, but certainly as an extremely important member of the club of global capitalist superpowers. And his vision was that if you could bring China into the top table of globalization, admitting China to the World Trade Organization, that the Chinese Communist Party monopoly over so many aspects of Chinese life would be undermined. In the past, virtually every Chinese citizen woke up in an apartment or a house owned by the government, went to work in a factory or a farm run by the government, and read newspapers published by the government. Now people are leaving those firms, and when China joins the WTO, they will leave them faster. The Chinese government no longer will be everyone's employer, landlord, shopkeeper, and nanny all rolled into one. It will have fewer instruments, therefore, with which to control people's lives. And that may lead to very profound change. People talk about a bipartisan consensus to get tough on China today, but there was a bipartisan consensus 20 years ago as well. What's the difference? The difference is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that we're trading with an entrepreneurial class in China. This is George Bush, then governor of Texas, giving speeches around America on the election trail, answering a journalist's question about why he advocates greater trade with communist China, but not with Cuba. By trade with China, that we're encouraging a group of entrepreneurs and small business owners to, uh, to be able to get a taste of freedom, that we're giving them an opportunity to grow. That's not the case in Cuba. In Cuba, we're trading, in essence, with a government-controlled entity. And uh, my worry is that capital flowing into Cuba will help prop up the Fidel Castro regime. My belief is by, by uh, trading with an entrepreneurial class in China, it will enhance the spread of freedoms in China. There's a big difference. As a step to bringing China into the World Trade Organization, the administration under Bill Clinton needed Congress to give China basically a permanent status as a trade partner. There was an, a strange alliance between people very focused on Chinese human rights and 
uh, people were very focused on China as a potential threat because it offered cheap labor. So you had trade unions, labor unions in the States. Uh, you had some figures, uh, some of whom became later very powerful, like Bob Lighthizer, who eventually became the chief trade representative for, for Donald Trump. But 20 years before that, he was a trade lawyer, very suspicious that opening the world to globalization, allowing foreign goods into America would be good for American workers. What this debate really is about is predicting the future, the way I look at it. It is, we know right now that in China there are, number one, a lot of things going on that, that none of us like. China is a rogue nation. There are 1,000 slave labor, forced labor camps in China. We must stay engaged and influence the direction that China takes. The issue is whether if we do this, will it make things better, or will it make things worse, and that's where we go in, in different directions. It was kind of an either or. Either they're going to be this kind of capitalist market, or they're going to be this communist dragon. The problem is that like so many either or choices, actually the truth was it was an and. That the China of today under Xi Jinping turns out to be a great mercantilist dragon under Communist Party control, but using the power of those vast markets to cow and co-opt its capitalist rivals and to really try and rewrite the rules of the global trading order. Now in 2021, under Xi Jinping, China is playing by, in some senses, the letter of its commitments when it joined the WCO, but not remotely the spirit of them. It is a mercantilist superpower wedded to industrial policy and state control of the economy. And now, in terms of that synergy of 20 years ago with the Americans, the really unhappy change is that the absolute consensus here in Beijing among you know, all officials and scholars that you talk to, is that America, when it puts pressure on China, when it says that China needs to change the way that it runs its economy or its political system, it is not Bill Clinton with a kind of vision for how to help China become freer and richer. That America is jealous of China's rise, that America is trying to cling on to its top dog status and is willing to cheat and block and contain and hold China down. So now if you raise your hand inside the Chinese machine and say, maybe the foreigners have a point, maybe we should think about these economic reforms for our own sake as well as theirs, now you no longer sound imaginative and visionary, you sound like a traitor. So were Clinton, Bush and other advocates of engagement naive in their China strategy? I think the strongest defence from those China boosters of 20 years ago is that it was worth trying. What was the alternative? Voting against PNTR won't free a single prisoner or create a single job in America or reassure a single American ally in Asia. It will simply empower the most rigid anti-democratic elements in the Chinese government. It would leave the Chinese people with less contact with the democratic world and more resistance from their government to outside forces. China was already getting big and rich and strong. And the alternative to asking them to be uh, a responsible stakeholder in the existing rules-based order was for them to be an irresponsible free rider on the outside. And bringing them onto the inside seemed like a way to get valuable concessions at the time. I think maybe the most interesting observation I've heard in the last couple of years is that America and the West were guilty of strategic 
narcissism. So that came from some people at the top of the Trump administration, smart people who said fundamentally the mistake was that everyone imagined that as China became a manufacturing power to rival America, that it was of course going to become more like America. China was always going to find its own road. John, those archive clips of Bill Clinton and George W. Bush talking about China just underline what a different world we're in now. Then the bipartisan consensus, as David explained, was solidly behind um, trying to manage and almost welcome China's rise and and growth into an economic superpower. Um, Was that naive in your view? I tend to take the view that David mentioned that what was the alternative? The alternative would have been to leave them outside the global rules-based system as sort of a disengaged free rider rather than trying to liberalize them through welcoming them in. In retrospect, it's very easy to say that that was you know, strategically narcissistic, that we were wrong to assume that China would inevitably become like the West. And I think that's a mistake that you know we may have made with Russia as well. But I tend to think there was no good alternative at the time, or if there is, I certainly haven't thought of one. Zani, I suppose one lesson of that recent history is to mistrust bipartisan consensus. And the bipartisan consensus now is very solidly on the other side. I mean, when we were in Washington, we talked to a couple of Republican senators who were criticizing the Biden administration for not being tough enough on China, even though, as Gardy explained earlier, the Biden administration's policy is is very like the Trump administration's policy, which was tough, and, and in many ways, it's tougher. So as journalists, we're trained to be a bit suspicious of the conventional wisdom. What do you think the conventional wisdom in Washington on China here, here is missing? What do you think the downsides of this emerging Biden-China doctrine could be? Well, I think, first of all, the risk is that it under states the costs to America and to the world of following through on the logic of what is now a much more confrontational strategy and a disengaging of the two economies, an unwinding of the global economy that comes as that. If it were to succeed to the degree necessary, I think, to achieve the sort of national security goals that are now taken for granted on both sides as being the goals to go for, it's really quite a big disengagement. And the more likely route, I think, is that actually when the costs of that become clear, it won't actually be done full-throatedly and there will be sort of surgical disengagements. But then there'll be a very big gap between the Manichaean uh, rhetoric and the reality which I think is is sort of also quite worrying. If you if you say that the most you know the biggest existential threat for the United States is to make sure that it can kind of blunt China's dominance of the 21st century, and then China, as it almost inevitably will, becomes quite soon within a few years the biggest economy and is an ever bigger player in the on the global stage, then and you've set this up in this confrontational terms, uh, I think you're in in a, in quite a problematic situation. So that for, that for me is the biggest worry of the moment. But the other, and, and I defer to you know my colleagues who know China much better than I do, but I think there is quite a lot of looking back and thinking that this trajectory was somehow inevitable and, and people 20 years ago should have should have foreseen it. And I think it's it's not at all clear to me that the trajectory within China was inevitable. The naivety charge seems unfair to me. I mean, I think People around 2000 were optimistic, and, and rightly so. It was you know pre 9/11. It was at the you know end of history moment when it all seemed to be going well for liberal democracies. And 
the changes under Xi Jinping have been very, very significant. He's taken China in a much more authoritarian direction. Militarily, it's you know, much more willing now to flex its muscles in you know, places like the South China Sea, with skirmishes on the border with India. You have the uh, cracking down on freedoms in, in Hong Kong. You have the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So the way China has developed in the years since, I think, has a very big impact on America's policy. And you know, let's face it, there is an uncertainty about the way China's Communist Party will develop in the future. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, I don't, I'm sure you read it, our colleague James Miles's excellent special report just a couple of weeks ago, which really laid out quite how he had, you know, changed the Communist Party and was utterly dominant, but also how it was riven with paranoia and insecurity. And how I would, I think it would be foolish to base policy on the idea that this regime is not going to be strong and powerful and authoritarian for a while. But I think it would be would be also mistaken not to completely count out the possibility of some change there. It's a fascinating piece. And John, whatever the Chinese Communist Party does and whatever the Biden strategy is towards it, there is this other problem that the Biden administration would like to work on, which is reducing the speed of climate change, reducing carbon dioxide emissions. And this is the the classic illustration of America's codependence with with China, right, When when it comes to the technologies required to do that. It is. And China's been quite ambitious in its climate goals, both sort of objectively and in comparison to the United States. Xi Jinping would like to achieve carbon neutrality by 2060, have its renewable energy sources account for 25% of its total energy consumption by 2030. That's in nine years. And it's making progress, right? As of 2019, 15% of China's energy consumption came from renewables, which is more than double what it was a decade ago. So it's not just that China and the United States share goals on reducing carbon emissions and fighting climate change. It's that China is actually doing quite a bit. And America, in comparison, looks somewhat flat-footed. That's true, John. But even here, I think there are kind of complexities, trade-offs and and entanglements. I mean, you're absolutely right that China is doing something um, and it is doing something, I think, for its own domestic reasons, much as the US in the end will do something for its own domestic reasons. But, But clearly, cooperation between the world's biggest and second biggest economy would make the whole you know, proceeding on the climate agenda much easier. And it would certainly make it much easier to set global standards. It would make it much easier to bring others along. And so if you don't have that, uh, I think it will be, we will progress more slowly. But there are other unfortunate trade-offs that come from having the many priorities and, and worthy priorities that the Biden administration has. And one that that always strikes me in the short term is the kind of, sort of tragic tension that you know, the, the focus on Xinjiang rightly and the, the human rights abuses there and the kind of much more aggressive posture in terms of sanctions and so forth that the Biden administration has taken actually clashes, at least in the short term, with the climate agenda, because there are some key components into solar panels, for example, which are heavily produced and the world is reliant on Xinjiang. And that, you know, fast forward, there's a there's a this, and this is actually a justification and an explanation for wanting to broaden supply chains because China is becoming a very big leader in electric vehicles, in batteries. And in there is a sense that even on the area of climate where you would want to have the lowest possible cost renewable energy sources everywhere, if China becomes the kind of single source of all of these, then the, then the rest of the world is vulnerable too. So there's a, there's a really sort of difficult trade-off there for the Biden administration, because if in the short term they really stopped everything from Xinjiang, it would clearly affect the climate agenda. 
Okay, thank you both. We've been talking so far mainly about policy and high politics, but we'll be back in a moment to look at how Chinese citizens view America and how attitudes to China are changing among American voters too. John, you've been talking to Su Lin Wong, The Economist's China correspondent, about how the younger Chinese generation perceived the U.S., Yeah, it was a fascinating conversation. The attitudes of young Chinese digital natives, of course, are shaped largely by what they see online. In 2000, Bill Clinton and China boosters believed that the internet might bring democracy to China. That really has not happened. We know how much the internet has changed America. And we are already an open society. Imagine how much it could change China. Now, there's no question China has been trying to crack down on the internet. Good luck. (laughs) That's sort of like trying to nail jello to the wall. So, Su Lin, you're in Hong Kong right now, but you have close eye on the mainland. What do things look like there? Have the Chinese successfully nailed jello to the wall? Yes. Um, I think Bill Clinton has been proven wrong by the Chinese Communist Party. I think that the uh, censors and propagandists have generally been pretty successful in shaping the official narrative, scrubbing out dissent, or even just slightly critical comments online. And this has very much shaped young Chinese views of America. Uh, On top of that, many young Chinese have been horrified by America's handling of COVID and by President Trump's time in office. And a recent survey showed that uh, while five years ago, almost 40% of young Chinese said they looked up to the West now fewer than 10% say that. And five years ago, uh, just under 20% of young Chinese said they looked down on the West, but now more than 40% say this. So we really have seen uh, quite a shift in public opinion. Donald Trump. What about views of Donald Trump? I understand he is sometimes called the king of understanding. Tell me a bit more about how about how young online Chinese view him. This is a riff on all those times he claimed no one in the world knew more about renewable energy or social media or drone your taxes that, than he did. I know China very well. I love China. I love China. I love China. Nobody knows China better than me. Better, 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 better. The time he said we might be able to treat COVID by injecting ourselves with disinfectant. I mean, those kinds of comments got a lot of airtime in China and people were absolutely horrified. There are some extremely popular videos on Chinese social media that mock Trump. And one that was the most watched video at one point on Billy Billy, a Chinese video streaming site, is of American kids being interviewed by an American journalist and they're mocking Trump and they're impersonating him. It's going to be great. China, China, China. We are going to build a wall. Another nickname for Trump in China is Guo, which translates as something like Trump builds the motherland. And the joke is that Trump caused such havoc in America that he was clearly a Chinese spy sent by the Communist Party to foment unrest in America and help China grow stronger in the process. The majority of young Chinese say that they think 
China respects human rights more than the West does. It's pretty shocking for many Westerners to hear this, but in fact, it, it fits into a common narrative in China that America is hypocritical to lecture China about its human rights record, considering hundreds of thousands of Americans have died from COVID, many live in poverty, there are almost daily incidents of horrific gun violence, there are widespread anti-Asian attacks, the list goes on. And I think the Communist Party has been extremely effective in using the internet and using its controls on information Many Chinese don't believe what what we in in the West see see as fact that the party is committing crimes against humanity in Xinjiang and is brutally cracking down on Hong Kong and is erecting uh, an increasingly effective surveillance state. Zani, those clips we heard there from Su Lin made it sound like young Chinese people feel more sort of mockery towards America than hostility. How about the US attitudes to China, not among senators and people advising the president, but among sort of more ordinary Americans in the street? How, how different do you think that is to the Chinese attitude to America? I don't think Americans are mocking China. I think there is a real sense of concern. I think one poll showed that 89% of Americans consider China a competitor or an enemy. Almost half think that limiting China's power should be a top foreign policy priority. In the US, I think it is very much a sense of, you know, the 20th century hegemon is feeling threatened and is feeling threatened by a really very nasty regime. And actually, I was I was struck listening to that clip of Bill Clinton. I mean, Getting the internet so wrong, I, that's the, the, the one thing that surprises me most. We got that so wrong. The idea that the Chinese government could build a surveillance state as effectively as it is building it and harness the technologies of the 21st century to do so. That, I think, is the reason why everyone is so worried. You know, what if this authoritarian regime gets hold of and is, is at the pinnacle of other 21st century te- technologies? So that's a genuine Genuine and very real cause for concern. At the same time, I have, I have, I sort of hear Sulin talk about the contempt and the mockery that young Chinese feel um, for America, and I think I'm sure some of it is the very sanitized propaganda diet that they're being fed. But I think some of it is also understandable, actually. If you, in in the sense of if you see what has been happening in the U.S., the polarization, the sclerosis, the kind of you know the challenge to democracy. The, all of the things that have been going on in the US, it isn't a great beacon of enormously successful society or hasn't been recently, which is why to sort of end where we, where we began, I think the motivations behind some of what the Biden administration is trying to do are indeed really admirable. But by setting this up as this Manichaean struggle, I think they make it easier for young Chinese to believe it is a Manichaean struggle and they are simply coming to their what they see as their rightful position back at the centre of the global stage. David Rennie had a nice line when we were talking earlier about the Clinton quote about nailing Jello to the wall. He said that it turns out that you can nail Jello to the wall if you have enough nails. And, and the Chinese Communist Party has, it turns out, enough nails. John, how big a risk do you think there is of um, Chinese and Americans just fundamentally misunderstanding each other? I mean, Su Lin wrote a great piece for us 
last year, I think, pointing out that fewer and fewer Americans are studying Chinese in college. You know, paradoxically, given the growing importance of China, there's been real drop-off in interest in China studies, I suppose, as a result of China's more authoritarian turn under, under Xi Jinping and a general feeling that China is not going to change. How much do you worry about mutual misunderstanding on both sides, uh, potentially leading to the thing that you know everybody worries about? The big sort of meta worry over all of this is at some point, decades uh, down the road, some form of conflict between the two superpowers. I think it's a huge risk. The dual misunderstanding is a huge risk. The poll that Zanny mentioned, this large share of Americans who think that China is a threat, I'd love to know exactly what they think the nature of the threat is. If it's sort of just a sense that we've been on top and there's someone else coming you know, to, to take our place, that's one thing. If it's more substantive, that's another. But I think it surprises me, the waning interest in Chinese studies. I think it's essential that we get as many students fluent in Chinese as possible, in China as possible, so that we can find a way to, to coexist. That's actually where, unfortunately, another area where COVID is causing a huge, huge problem. I mean, the striking thing is China is very strict, as you know, about uh, not really allowing anyone into China. And I, I, I worry that it will be seen by China as being in its interest to keep those restrictions on for a very long time. But my broader point, and this betrays the kind of, I mean, I suppose I'm still, you know, one of the last globalists left standing. My 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 broader view that for both sides to retreat into their kind of respective camps, to have those camps in a sort of struggle against each other and to disentangle the integration that has taken place will leave everybody worse off and will increase the risks of misunderstanding the other. And so while we've all learnt that you know, naive engagement proved to be naive or naive belief in engagement proved to be naive. I am really worried about going too far in the other direction. Well, I think that's a great place to leave this one. But before I let you go, Zani, you know what's coming. It's quiz time. Oh, no. On... <laughs> On November the 14th, 1998, The Economist reported that internet use in China was skyrocketing. But how many wangchong, or net bugs, were estimated to be using the internet by the end of July that year? So July 1998. Was it 1.5 million, 10.5 million, or 150 million? I would guess the small number, 1.5 million. I think 1.5 million, yeah. You're both correct. It was indeed one and a half million Chinese internet users, increasing by an estimated 150,000 every month. The same article considers how China would respond to a flood of online content from abroad and refers back to a Qing dynasty, Mandarin, who grappled with a similar dilemma in an earlier century. He proposed a pithy formula for resolving it. Chinese learning for the fundamental principles, Western learning for practical application. Traders and missionaries from which country coined the word Mandarin or Mandarin to describe the Chinese officials they met? I know you're trying to give me a clue with your accent there, but I'm afraid I'm still not getting it. Is it Spain? Italy? Ah, oh, that parity in this quiz. It's in fact Portugal. I was going <laughs> to... Ah, so close. I thought if I pronounced it in my thick Brazilian-Portuguese accent, that might give it away. So I, I refrained mid-word. Mid um, and of course, of course, Portugal had Macau, right? Spain didn't have anything. Exactly. Yeah. And the Portuguese traders were all up and down that coast. Um, 
Zanny parity. That's that's very respectable. If I remember, you did well last time on the quiz. So so Fasman's superpower is winning. No, I don't think it so. is. I don't sadly. think so. I don't think that was a particularly <laughs> credible performance. <laughs> Well, Zanny, thank you very much for joining us again. Enjoy your freedom as you're let out of quarantine tonight. I shall be enjoying moving out of West London. Um, and it was a delightful to be with you again. Thank you. Um, John, great to see you as always. Great to see you too. Thank you. Thanks also to our producer, Julia Johnson, and our sound engineer, Nico Rofast. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. And I must say, we've had some fantastic letters on last week's episode about the history wars in America, including a bunch of letters from people teaching history in American classrooms. So please keep those coming. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.